0: Esther chapter 7, please. Esther chapter 7 in your Bibles. Go ahead and stand if you would while we read the text. And then uh, we'll get into the message here. Esther chapter 7, verse number 1. So the king and Haman came to to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to half the kingdom." Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that dost presumed in his heart to do so and esther said the adversary and enemy is this wicked haman then haman was afraid before the king and the queen and the king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath went into the palace garden and haman stood up to make request for his life to esther the queen for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king then the king returned out of the palace garden under the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in my house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who has spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So the hanged Haman on the gallows that they had prepared, that he had prepared for Mordecai, then was the king's wrath pacified. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. We ask you now to speak to our hearts as we get into your word. Give us the message you have for us. We ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. I got looking at this story and thinking about this piece of the story. I find it very, very intriguing to me how that. The thing ends up the way that you and I would expect it to end up if God was just, right? You got a wicked man torturing a a, a young girl for no good reason because he has this, this hatred for Mordecai and it really his issues with Mordecai and because of his pride, he's kind of like getting after Mordecai and he disregards the, the fallout for his actions or all of the innocent people that are going to be affected because of his wicked position that he has with the king and his wicked motives and, and all this stuff is going on and you got an innocent girl caught in the middle of it all. And we've gone over this quite a bit so we don't have to reiterate the whole thing, but she has not been living a very easy life. Up to this point, you see the fear in her. I mean, the fear that goes back to the point where it was, you know, hey, listen, you need to go in and make this petition to the king. And she's like, if I go in there, you realize I might perish. And her uncle has to say, listen, take your chance and go in there because don't think that you're going to escape just because you're in the palace. I mean, this girl has got a ton of pressure on her. She has had a very rough life. She's lost her parents. Then she loses her life to crazy circumstances of a wicked, domineering king that's taking over, that has taken over her whole nation that's in judgment. You think about the whole setting for Esther and just imagine what it would be like to be in her shoes. What I want to talk to you about this morning is the end of the Lord. Now, that's not like it sounds. The end of the Lord. I want us to take away from this something that will help us just stick it out and be faithful when things are not going our way. Because the majority of your life, the majority of the Christian life, the majority of the lives of the people you study as you watch the Bible and you look at the Bible, the vast majority of their life is not the peaks and the highlights that we see in the stories that we read. Did you ever run and look, try to look up the dates and figure out how long it was from this great story about Elijah till he had his next great story? And realize that throughout your Bible, you get the highlights of a lot of things, but there's a long period in between there of just frustration, depression, discouragement, disillusionment. Like, man, my life is not working out and serving God has not benefited me personally. It's actually gone against me. Serving God has actually put me in a bad position because of who I am as a Christian. I'm in a worse spot than I would have been if I was just like everybody else in the world. You've got to realize that you have an enemy. You signed up for something when you said, I want to serve Jesus Christ. You not only signed up for him in a relationship with him and him to lead you and to follow him in your life, right? Yes, sir. It's shocking to me how many times when I lead somebody to Jesus Christ and they clearly understand the gospel, what they'll say after they trust Christ as their Savior is they'll say, Lord, please walk with me through this life. Or something to that effect. I'm talking about adults that get saved. I mean, people that are up in their 30s, 40s, 50s, when they get saved, you know what they realize? They realize listen, I want God. I'm I'm sick of this world. I'm sick of all the ups and downs. I'm sick of all the, the sadness and the heartbreak and the frustration of life in a sinful world. I want God. I'm signing up to have somebody guide me through this life. Somebody help me through this life. That's their desire. And so when you sign up to walk with God, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get the attention of an adversary like Haman. Haman's name actually means turmoil. Has to do with confusion. Now, the Bible tells us that God is not the author of ever been confused. Ever felt like ever since I started really trying to serve the Lord, actually things got worse, not better. You know what you've got to remember in that moment? You haven't seen the end of the Lord yet. You've only seen the beginning. One thing I've noticed, even, and it even is true in the ministry, but oftentimes in the Christian life, when somebody first gets saved, there's a ton of success. When somebody first gets right with Jesus Christ after they've been backslidden for a while and they get back in church, God gives them some initial success. A lot of guys, when they first start out in the ministry, when God's really called them and God's really doing something, there will be like first fruits, like an initial success. And it's like, man, God does this because you get all excited and you think the greatest thing I ever did is serve the Lord. The most wonderful thing that ever happened to me was to ask Jesus Christ to save me or to get right with my Savior and give him my life and begin to start trying to serve him with my life, the most wonderful thing I ever did is step out in faith and obey God and plant a church and see this thing get going. And man, there's a period of three, four, five, six, seven, maybe even ten years of like what seems to be blessing and success and like this was a great decision. And it almost always happens in in marriages. We call it the honeymoon period, right? For the first little while, and that could be anywhere from a week, to a couple years for some people. There's the honeymoon period. I think God is really, really, really good to do that for us. Because if God didn't give me some initial success for I think the first five or six years of this ministry, it was like, man, we're going to be record setters, you know. If God didn't do that, I don't think I would have had the character or the experience or the knowledge that God can do it and the understanding and my relationship with Him and the faith built to actually believe that He's going to do it later. I think I would have quit during some of those long interms if God hadn't given me some initial success. Here God does the same thing for Esther. He gives her some initial success. I mean, she's the one that gets picked out of all the women. And she's in the palace now. She's the queen. She's the replacement. And then she finds out there's a death sentence, not just against her, but against Mordecai, against all her people. And there's this enemy embedded, right? She literally walked into the lion's den. What kind of success is that, God? I mean, I thought you loved me. I thought you were going to bless me. Listen, in that moment, remember, you haven't seen the end of the Lord yet. Think about Job. Unbelievable, wealthiest man in all the world. Wisest man. Everybody came to Job for wisdom and for advice. Job had a, a heart of absolute gold. I listen to his stupid friends and their dumb accusations and all the stuff they're saying about him. It's like, you know, how he sent away widows. And they're making all these dumb, presumptive assumptions about Job because they're seeing what he's going through. But in reality, Job wasn't the guy who was sending away widows. Job, in all that God had done for him and all that God had given him, loved his children, loved his wife, loved other people. And from what I think, when I see the story, I see Job as the guy, like, couldn't pass up a widow. I see him as the guy that couldn't pass up an orphan, couldn't pass up a fatherless. I see him as the guy who was there to try to help everybody he could help when something would come to Job. I believe Job did it. God said he's a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. Yeah, he was wealthy, sure. I'm sure he was smart with his money, but I will guarantee you Job was also a generous man and was there to meet every need that he could meet. And look what happened to him. He lost all his kids in one day. He lost everything he owned. He even lost his health. And it's that long interim period where you got to remember, you haven't seen the end of the Lord yet. When I say the end of the Lord, I don't mean the Lord himself ending. I'm getting that phrase from your Bible. What it means is the end of what God is going to do with this situation. Let me show you. Go to James chapter number 5. James chapter number 5. Start with me in verse number 7, if you would, please. It says in James 5, 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren the prophets who who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Those people that... Went through that long period in between the highlights of what God's doing. We count them happy. I want to be happy, don't you? Come on, man. You know you want to be happy. You know why this world dopes up and drinks up and everything else? They want to be happy. I don't care if you are a melancholy personality. Down deep, what you really want is happiness. That's what we all want. He said we count them happy which endure." Those that are in the middle of the problem realize we're not at the end yet. Ye have heard the patience of Job and have seen, here it is, the end of the Lord. Now watch it, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. That is a great phrase about God. What James is saying, let's go back to Esther. What James is saying is he's saying, Brethren, listen, take Job for an illustration. Remember Job. He was patiently enduring all that he went through and you see what God does in the end. The end of the Lord. The goal God had in mind. You know what God did for Job? His latter end. It actually says it at the end of the book of Job and Job's latter end, I think it was seven times more than what he had before. (laughs) In other words, looking back, looking back from the end, back through the problem to previous, Job would sit here and tell you this, this morning, if Job was preaching, he would say, I'm glad all that happened because I came out seven times better than I was when I went into it. Because the goal God had, the end that God had designed in the problem was so much greater than I could have ever imagined before the problem and than I even possibly could have comprehended in the problem. The end of the Lord is wonderful because he is pitiful and he is tender in his mercy. Not just merciful. That, that's a great word, man. I mean, I don't know what you think of yourself, but when I, what I know of me, I really appreciate Mercy. When I look at God and I know how merciful God is to me, man, I appreciate that about the Lord. You know know what I want to do? I want to give other people the exact same amount of mercy and grace that God has given to me and nothing more. Now you think about that a minute. Just give everybody else the mercy and grace God gave you and don't give them any more than God gave you. Just give them what God gave you. That'll change your life. The end of the Lord is an amazing thing, and when you look at this passage and what God was doing, there is no way that you and I could have ever premeditated. There's no way Mordecai or Esther could have laid this thing out. There's no way a human being could have strategized the battle with the enemy and somebody trying to serve the Lord and somebody doing right and somebody else doing right and innocent bystanders all around and God Almighty orchestrating that whole thing with this Gentile king and this wicked Haman and him embedded there with. king, and just like that, with I mean, promoted to number two position in all of the kingdom. Powerful man! There's no way Esther could have done or brought out of that whole situation what the end of the Lord was, what his design was. She couldn't have done it. But the unseen hand of God, like we've been preaching about, was working the whole time behind the scenes and brings this thing out in the end as only God could do. Now here's the point we're making and we'll look at my, I got three points for you this morning and we'll go. I don't think God's done. I don't think he's done with you. I don't think he's done with me. I don't think God's done with this ministry. So what we need to consider this morning is what do we do? What should we be? What are we going to come up against to stop us from seeing the end of the Lord? Look at the first thing in the passage. You'll notice the petition that Esther makes. In verse number one, the king and Haman come to the banquet and with Esther the queen. And the king says, said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to half the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, Watch her position, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king. And if it please the king, let my life be given at my petition and my people at my request. You know what I find interesting about her petition? It's humble. There was no assumption on Esther's part that the king owed her anything. What did God say about Job that was so amazing? In all this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. You realize that our petitions are off when we start looking at God saying, why would you do this? That doesn't make sense. That's not fair. How did I deserve this? I didn't deserve any of this. This isn't fair. That's all charging God, saying it's 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 as if to say, even though we won't come right out and say it, it's as if to say, God, you're not doing right by me. I'm trying to serve you, and my life is not working out like I thought it was going to. My circumstances are not what I wanted, and when I signed up to serve you, I expected something more, and at first you might have showed me some blessings, but look where I'm at now. It's a lack of humility, but not Esther. Esther didn't walk in there saying, hey, I'm the queen. I wasn't like all them other girls. I didn't make a bunch of demands. She came in there and said, King, if I have found favor in your sight. You want to know what I want from God? I'm telling you what I want bad from God. I want to find favor in His sight. I want to be able to say like David, the Lord liked me. One of my my favorite verses in all the Bible. He liked me to make me king. Wait a minute, David, explain that to us. Is it because as a young man you were so faithful to do right? Is it because of the lion and the bear? Is it because of Goliath? Is it because you wouldn't lift up your sword against Saul? Is it because of your character? David's explanation for why God made him king was as simple as God liked me. That's all he said. What he's saying is, I cannot tell you that I deserve it. When David looked at himself, he saw a murdering adulterer. When David looked at himself, he saw a man who violated the rules of God and numbered the people. David saw the reality of who David was. David wasn't claiming that he was anything special. He just said, the Lord liked me. Man, I want God to like me. So I think one of the ways to see God like you is to make sure that you don't have a presumptuous attitude that God owes you anything or that you're something special. That you deserve anything from Him. Look, hey King, listen, I do have a petition. What's your petition? I really don't want to die. And I don't want all my family to die. So her petition came in very humbly without an expectation. And secondly, her petition was for other people, not just for herself. Now you stop and think about that for a minute. I want the end to turn out right. Remember, that's what we're talking about this morning the end of the Lord. Can I tell you if you have you in mind all the time and that's your number one concern, you can be guaranteed the end is not going to be the end God's looking for in your life. Right. No one of us is as important as we feel like we are. Right. Do you realize every last person here this morning is replaceable? Sure. Now, I'm not saying that I don't care. I'm not saying that to talk down to you. I'm not saying that there's not a great void in our lives when somebody's gone. One of the hardest parts about pastoring, one of the most difficult things, is you really do get to love people, especially a small church like this that's slow-growing. We really get to know everybody. And this is literally like an extended family for us. When somebody leaves, it does hurt. Do you understand that? When somebody leaves, it does greatly affect us. When somebody leaves even our house when we're home, even among us as a family, it's like it takes the wind out of our sails. I'm saying that because I want you to understand the point that I'm making when I say something as harsh as no one person is irreplaceable. Not even the pastor. We're not as important as we think we are. Didn't Mordecai tell her earlier, if you don't step up, God will bring deliverance from somewhere else? You see, in the economy of God, we're really just these we're not even we're not even the size of an ant running around on a tiny little dirt ball kicked off in the back of some galaxy somewhere. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now you think about that a minute. That's a wild thing. We're not that important. So I think what gets God's attention is when we look at ourselves as, God, if I have some favor with you, can you use me for them? Now, if your life is wired that way, God's going to do something with your life. That's the problem with this generation that's all about self-promotion. It's the problem with the whole internet mentality because there's no connection there eyeball to eyeball with the individual. There's no getting to know this person and actually sacrificing to minister to him. Actually having to work on my faults and my failures and put those down so that I can be what I need to be to help you out, to be a blessing to you. The internet will promote you really fast and get you recognized really quick and turn you into a Haman. But that ain't what God's looking for. God's looking for an Esther. If you want Haman's end, because the end of the Lord worked in Haman's life, if you want that end of the Lord, then fine, be all about you. Be all about your promotion. Think it's all about you. Make sure your petitions when you go to God are always about what you want. Do you think God knows what you want? You think God knows what you need? Do you know God's given me a lot of my wants? Never when I was obsessed with it or asking about it or really wanted it. A lot of my wants came after the fact, and I was like, oh, I forgot I wanted that. But whenever my petitions were all about Mike, the end of God wasn't working in my life. It was Haman's end, not Esther's. Esther makes this request, and she says, listen, I don't want to die, and I don't want my people to die. This is my request. She says, listen, what I want you to do is take my favor. God, are, are you hearing my prayer? God, am I in? Am I clean? Am I doing right? I've confessed up. Is there a connection between me and you, God? Hey, is it fresh with us? I, I'm going through a good time in my life. My relationship is fresh. I, I have your ear. Okay, God, if you got favor for me, then would you give it, give it to somebody else? God, if you're listening... Then, then, then I'm asking you to help Ramona. Amen. God, if you're listening, God, if you and I are close, if I found favor in your sight, then my petition is for Grandma Ferguson. God, are you listening? If I found favor in your sight, then I'm praying for the, the lost loved ones of people in my church. God, I'm praying for the young people that that wicked Haman not get in their mind and drag them away from God. Amen. God, I'm praying for these young ladies and these young men. To not let some little nut come along and pull them away from Jesus Christ. Give them a good King James Bible believing, God fearing, church going man to support them. Give them a King James Bible believing, God fearing, church going woman to marry him and to help him serve Jesus Christ. God, I got your ear. I got favor, Lord. Are you listening, Lord? Then if I'm tuned in, God, please help my children. Please bless my wife. See what I'm saying? Go to Isaiah chapter number 58. Let me show you something. Isaiah chapter number 58. I'll show you something about God. And this is the confusion with religious practices. I got an entire message on this, but I'm not going to preach it to you. But I want to show you the point. Look at verse number uh, four. Oh, verse number three. Isaiah 58 3, they say they're, they're talking to God and they're frustrated with him because he's not working like they want him to work. And they're doing all this stuff to please God. They're seeking him daily. They take delight in approaching to him. They're, you know, they're listening to the preaching. They got they got this wonderful, so spiritual relationship with the Lord, right? Typical Bible believers. I just, you know, like we got it all together and we're so righteous and nobody else does it like we do it, and we got it all together, right? Verse 3, wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Fasting. I mean, I mean most Christians don't even fast today. These people are so serious, they're fasting. And God's like, not hearing your petition. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? They're afflicted. They're so serious about getting a hold of God. Like, I'm not eating until you answer. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get a hold of you, God. I want your attention. And God says, he's doing what? What's Mike doing? Angels are like, Lord, are you going to send us to go take care of this? Because Reagan's down there really beating himself half to death. I mean, he hasn't eaten in four days. And God, he's really serious. And he's crying and bawling and squalling and weeping and wailing. And God's like, huh? What's he doing? Whatever. Whatever. That's literally what's happening here. He said, behold, in the day day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. I fasted for four days. You're exacting your labors. You're really aware of what you're doing. And you're really proud of what you've done. He says in verse number four, behold, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. You know what Esther wasn't doing? She wasn't getting a hold of the king saying, hey, kill Haman, that wasn't her motive. Her motive was, save my people. Do you see the difference? You know, too much of the time we want God to send judgment. Hey, the book says, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You know why the end of the Lord works out great for Esther and horrible for Haman? Because God ain't mocked. But in the interim period, I'm sure she felt like God wasn't doing anything about it. But he's patient. He's waiting for the fruit. He wants to get the most back. So God waits, just like he does in my life and yours. So here they are. They're, they're, they're afflicting themselves, but they want the judgment of God on their enemies. He said, ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. He said, if that's the way you're fasting, I'm not listening. I'm not impressed with your religious shenanigans. I'm not impressed with your desire to see my judgment on somebody else. Why don't you offer them the exact amount of grace and mercy that I've given you? No more. Just don't know. You don't have to give them any more than I've given you, but why don't you give them as much as I've given you? See? Watch what the Lord says. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Now he tells him in verse number six. So he, he's saying, I, I, don't, I don't have these religious uh, uh, or spiritual disciplines to torture you. Nothing in me is happy that you haven't eaten. Oh, look, he's fasting. Oh, his stomach is growling. His blood sugar's dropping. He's really cranky, but he's trying. He didn't even sneak in coffee. He's like, nothing about me wants to watch you writhe in pain and go through. I have to go to church. That God's like, is that what I'm looking for? That's not what I'm looking for. We have to tithe. I'm not, That's not what I'm looking for. What are you talking about? I'm not listening. To that. I'm not seeing any of that. None of that means anything to me. And then he tells him what he's looking for. Verse 6. Is not this the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness. You got sin troubles? That's a great thing to fast about. To undo the heavy burdens. You, you, got, you got heavy burdens on you? I would take those to the Lord. I mean, it might be so heavy you got to crawl in, but I'd crawl in. To let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Yoke of bondage. Watch, is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? How about fasting that God will get in the message and feed people spiritually? Or that maybe some of your friends that are saved and need to be fed will get in a church where they're getting fed. How about that? That's a fast God will hear. And that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. When thou seest the naked, that thou cover them, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh." Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thy hell shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy rear word. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke and the putting forth of the finger and the speaking of vanities... I'm not worried about you accusing other people. I'm not worried about you telling me how wicked Haman is. I know how wicked he is. I'm going to deal with him in the end. I'm not worried about you obsessing about him. If Mordecai had been going to God like, Haman won't leave me alone, and Haman's driving me crazy, and we got this thing between me and Haman, God wouldn't listen. He doesn't care. That's harsh, ain't it? You know what I realized? I've had issues with some brethren more than once. You know what? And I've prayed about those issues. And you know what the Lord taught me? The Lord taught me, I don't care. I, I said you've you got to learn, I think before the message, you've got to learn how God speaks to you, right? So he does talk to me like this. He probably won't talk to you the same way, but he does talk to me like this. I got to a point where God told me, shut up. I don't want to hear it anymore and I don't care and that's driving you crazy but it doesn't matter to me. That's your ego and I'm not concerned. Well, Lord, you and I both know I'm more right. You know what what he's told me? Yeah, you are more right. You know what I'm going to do about it? Nothing. Because although you're more right than the other person, I don't care. You're all a bunch of troubled sinners. Knock it off. Just give him as much mercy and as much grace as I've given you. Well, Lord, when are you going to do something about this? I'm going to bless him. That's how, see, that's how God talks to me. Now, you still want a relationship with God? Because he might talk to you the same way. Probably not, okay? I'm a knucklehead. But that's, and I, t- I appreciate him talking to me like that. Because, man, I get it in perspective. If Mordecai had just been worried about Haman, God wouldn't have listened The end of the Lord works out great because this woman goes in before the king and she says, I got a petition, I got a request. He said, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom, honey, I'll give you anything you want because you are the apple of my eye, girl. You're my queen. I'll do whatever. I don't care. I mean, like Adam. Like Adam was willing to throw away his soul to be with that woman. That's the power she had with the king at that moment. And she said, all right, if I have favor... Would you help out my people, please? Ain't that something? You see the, you see the picture, the type in here? God's telling them in Isaiah 58, if thou draweth thy, verse 10, if thou draweth thy soul to hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be at the noonday. God's saying, if you worry about other people and you take care of other people and you reach out, to, then I'll, I'll, I'll promote you when I'm ready. I'll put you where I can use you if I can trust you. And I can trust you if you're looking for the favor of God on other people and not on yourself all the time. Verse 11, the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought. (laughs) You mean I benefit when I put other people first? Well, yeah. Then I'll take care of you. They that shall be of thee, uh, 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 make fat thy bones, thou shalt be watered like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee, your children, the posterity, what you leave behind, shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundation of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the paths to dwell in. You know how somebody gets that great, high, lofty recognition, and actually their life goes on beyond, the power of their life, and, and the influence of their life runs right off beyond, while they're buried in a grave somewhere, dirt over the top of them, six feet under, the power of their life continues to run down through generations behind them. By not putting yourself first. By not using the opportunity to make a petition to the king for you and what you want. By letting God give your life whatever he wants to give it, when he wants to give it. And saying, God, whether you do or don't give me anything in life, would you please hear my prayer and take care of everybody else? Would you please let me win some souls to Jesus Christ? Would you please let me disciple some new Christians that need to grow? Would you please let my influence help somebody else that needs to be in church? Would you please let my children get farther down the road than I did? Would you give them more wisdom than you ever gave me? Would I be able to dispense something to my kids and to my grandkids that will outlive me? Would you please let me be a benefit to everybody else around me? That's my petition, King. Oh, and then you see the end of the Lord. You see how the thing plays out in the end. Esther's a great example to us of how we should approach the Lord. Look at something else in the passage. There's a presumption here. The king says in verse number 5, And King Hacierus answered and said unto the queen, Who is he, and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? You know what messes up the end that God had for Haman's life? Because God didn't want Haman hung. God wasn't desirous of that. God doesn't want anybody going to hell. You think God delights in judgment? In, in, when I say judgment, you think God delights in damning souls to hell? You think God delights in, in destroying nations for their sin? If he did, he'd have smoked us a long time ago. He wants to see him come to him. He wants to see us get right. He wants to see people saved. His long-suffering is because he's not willing that any should perish. He's full of tender mercy. How could God let a nation like ours go as far as we've gone if he wasn't full of mercy? I'm sick of people talking bad about God. Drives me up, well, that God of the Bible, he's such a harsh God. He's such a... Are you kidding? He'd have exploded your brains, man, if he was so harsh just for saying that. Lost your mind. God didn't want to wreck Haman. The end of the Lord worked out in that way in his life because of his stupid presumptions. He presumed in his heart to do something that was going to benefit him. Now watch it. Your heart will do the exact same thing before you even know it's happening. Your first response will usually be, what profits me? Your first response will usually be, how's this going to work out for me? Your first response will usually be some kind of self-defense. That's going to be the first presumption of your heart every single time. Because you're in the flesh. Haman's presumption of his heart is the root of his issue. Haman is the adversary. Here's the presumption of the adversary the adversary presumes in his heart that he's going to win. So not only does he presume in his heart that he's going to get even with Mordecai, but he presumes in his heart that all of his evil devices are playing out the right way to stop his adversary, to block them from seeing the end that God has designed for them. Are you following me? I did tell you at the beginning when you decided to follow Jesus Christ, you did it because you wanted him actively in your life. And the first response is typically and oftentimes some instant and early success in serving him. And then that long period of testing, that long period where it's not working out, that long period of reality where the honeymoon is over and now we're really gonna find out what you're made of. If you really wanna take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ, if you really got saved and he really means something to you, now we're gonna get a chance to find out. And in that that period of time, the enemy will show up in a fashion that you've never seen him before. His strategy will be so complex and layered. The, The chess game of what he's trying to do in your life and how he'll try to get in your head and how he'll try to discourage you, how he'll try to divide you from the rest of the flock, the way he'll work will be overwhelming to you. And God will sit there and say, well... He's obviously grown because I gave him the good times. He knows I'm here and I'm, he's ready for this and I'm going to let it happen for a little while and we'll see how what he does. You know what the presumption of the devil is? Do you know what the presumption of Satan was when he approached God about Job? His presumption is take down that hedge, that early success and let me have him. Because I'm telling you, God, Bernard will curse you to your face when you let me have him. That's his presumption. He's presuming you're not going to make it. I had a preacher help me one time a lot because I'd just gotten frustrated in ministry and people were leaving after the early success and then people get mad and the people you swore would never leave, wind up leaving, and the people you thought would never make it stay. and Right? you learn not, as a parent, you learn not to have favorite kids. No. You understand that? Yeah. Just that's a dumb thing to do. You just love them all individually and don't have favorites. I, can't, I, do, I do have like favorite, but you want to be my favorite for the next five minutes? <laughs> 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 Go whip me up some eggs and some bacon and some toast, you'll be the favorite for five minutes. You know what I mean? Like, that's cool. I mean, that, that works, but there's no favorites. Hey, and, and I just got kind of, I, I got to a point where it was almost like when people come or people get saved, it's like, they're just going to leave. Do you know what that is? That's a presumption in my heart. That is the influence of a demonic spirit discouraging you because the devil always assumes you aren't going to make it. God let me at him and I'm telling you once you stop the blessings and you let me start working on them I'll get him to quit. That's the presumption of the enemy. That's why the preacher said you want to you know, poke the devil in the eye or something like that. And I think, I think what he said, if I'm remembering correctly, is give God glory. Thank God for what you're dealing with. Why? Because the devil's assuming you're not going to make it. Haman was sure he was going to win. Haman had no idea the queen was a Jew. Remember, she didn't tell her people. He had no idea what God was actually doing and how God was going to work that thing out in the end. He didn't see the end of the Lord. He just assumed you're not going to make it. How many of you have had people do that to you in church? Don't raise your hand. I had people assume I wasn't going to make it in the ministry. He ain't a pastor. I'm talking people with experience. I'm talking older people. He ain't a pastor. Guess what? I am a pastor. And I know it now. And you know why God picked me? He liked me. He's looking at the pews and he's going, that guy make a great pastor. That guy, He's got a tender heart. He's very teachable. That guy's a sweetheart. That guy will really love people. That guy will go out of his way to help everybody. That guy. I I like him. Because my strength is made perfect in weakness, and if I make him a pastor, then everybody's going to know I did it and not him. See how that works? Ain't that weird? That's what Paul said. The base things, the weak things, the things that are despised, the things that are not. Don't you ever let somebody point at you and say, you're not going to make it. I knew that. I knew how it was going to work out. I knew something was wrong with you. Hey, Hey, Haman... Hey Lucifer, he knows what he's doing, and he'll get me through. Amen. And I'm just gonna do right because it's right to do, and I'll let him work it out in the end. Because the end of God's always right. Haman assumed and presumed in his heart that it was gonna work and that he was gonna get to destroy all these people, but there was also a, dis- a presumption of Esther and Mordecai. You know what their presumption was? Do you remember? Who knows? Thou art coming to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows what God's going to do? You know what my presumption is this morning and I want my presumption to always be? Who knows what God's going to do? I've quit forecasting. I used to look at all the, the finances, I used to look at the attendance, and like if we keep growing like we've grown, then in five years we'll have this, and ten years we'll have that, the we'll, parking lot will be done, the additional will be done, blah, 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 we'll have paid off by this time. And that, goals are great, I'm a goal setter, I'll always be a goal setter, I, I, I analyze the things that are important to me, and I strategize, and that's just how I'm wired, but let me just tell you something from my heart, I have given up thinking that I'm going to lay it all out and know the timing on it all and how it's going to work and what's going to happen. Right. Amen. But I will tell you this much, God ain't done. No. And I'm just presuming, I'm just presuming, I'm just I'm just making an assumption that God's going to keep doing something. And you want to know, that gets me through sometimes when God ain't doing much. Why? Who knows, maybe I've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We preach a lot against the culture we're in, and that is necessary. You've you got to understand that. A lot of times people don't understand that. Why do you preach so much against contemporary churches, or why do you preach so much against... It, it's necessary. God raises up men in generations for that purpose, to call the stuff out, even if it means you get in trouble, or people don't like you, or people think you're being an idiot, or they think you're arrogant, or they think you know what. That's part of the job. But listen... I'm not here to attack the world around us. I think it's kind of cool that we get to be here now. I think it's kind of cool that I get to be a pastor in this day and in this age with the madness going on in the world around me. I think it's pretty awesome. Who knows? Maybe God has me here at this time because God's going to do something. And I want to be the guy he does it with. Which leads me to my last point and we'll go. You got not only the petition she made, but the presumption of the heart, and then the preservation of the queen. Where does her preservation come from? Because you know she's on the chopping block, right? She's asking for my life to be given to me. She's saying, I'm going to die, and so are all my people. We're all going to die. This is all a mess, This is not working out well. It's all snowballing the wrong direction. It's building steam, and it's about to come unglued. And at the last minute here, I mean, it's coming close to the day when they're going to go out there, and they're going to start slaughtering my people. And since you made a petition, and you went with it, hey, you signed my death certificate, dear. She was the queen, right? Where does her preservation come from? You know where it comes from? It comes from the response of the king. Esther says in verse number 6, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. His, the room closed in on him right there. His, his panic mode hit. The king arising from the banquet of wine and his wrath went into the palace garden. So he he's like, what? He's so, ah! He jumps up and he's out. He just storms out of the room because he's like, now I'm in a bad spot. This this snake. Here I am promoting this man and trying to get him down the road and recognizing him and have all this respect for him. I've been so good to him and that dirty snake. And actually I, I do love that girl. He storms out of the room angry. And then what happens right after that is Haman sees the desperate situation he's in and he goes over there and he falls on her bed. Now remember I told you in that day, in that time, what they would do is they would recline when they're eating, right? So they're still in the banquet room. The king jumps up and runs out and Haman goes over and just throws himself onto her bed where she's laying to eat and he's just begging her for his life. Here's the thing. The king... was not happy that somebody was messing with his bride. Did you hear me? Your king is not happy when somebody's messing with you. You have an adversary? His name is Lucifer. He's got principalities and powers that work against you. Your flesh also works against you. He's He's a tender mercy. He remembers our frame that we're but dust. God's mercy is showed you when your problems are the flesh. We are very hard on fleshly stuff. That's religion. That's Isaiah 58 in the early part. We're all about, you know, cleaning the flesh up and doing right by the flesh. But God's merciful towards the flesh. He understands the weakness of it. He understands the, the propensity in your heart to, to, to put yourself first. He gets it. But you know what he doesn't have mercy for? He doesn't have mercy for your adversary that wants to hurt you, that wants to stop you, that wants to play the ends against the middle to get you accusing God while he's trying to get God to accuse you. You do know that, right? He's called the accuser of the brethren. Yeah. So he's up there before the Lord's going, did you see Ethan King? Did you see that, God? Did you see what he did? Did you see Reagan? God, did you see that? He saved. Her. He knows better. Hey, man, they've both been in church their whole life. Look at that, God. They know better. Did you see what he did? Did you see Berlucci? Did you see what he did? All the time he's trying to make accusation. You know what he's doing? He's getting, trying to get God to accuse you of sin God washed away. But you know what else he's doing? He's trying to get you to accuse God in that interim period when the newness has wore off and it's gotten kind of hard and it's been a while since you've seen the blessing and you haven't seen the end yet and you're developing the patience in the middle of the problem trying to wait and see what God's going to do with it. He tries to get you to accuse God. He plays the ends against the middle. That's good preaching. So, what you got here is something that's got to be bigger than you, preserving you. And you know what that is? It's your king. When you mess with his wife, he will kill you. You understand that, right? Simple enough. There's really not a lot to say about it. It don't matter. He knows all about her faults. He knows all about her faults, but he loves her. And he finds out somebody's trying to set her up and wreck her, and it infuriates him, because he's pitiful and full of tender mercy. She goes to him with this request, and man, she did it the right way, boy. She didn't jump the gun, she didn't rush it, she waits till the last minute, she sees through the prayer and fasting time, she gets an opportunity to present it to him, she doesn't present it right away, she's patient, she's holding back, she's waiting until the time is exactly right, and then she puts her petition to him, and her petition had the right reasons for it, and the presumption is, I'm asking him because he's going to take care of it. And the preservation comes because the king does care about her. The preservation of the king comes by his judgment, his wrath. The king returns from the palace garden in verse 8 into the banquet of wine and Haman's fallen on the bed before Esther, right? And the king makes a false assumption which your king never does. But he's like, oh, now he's trying to rape her? Okay. And his anger is so obvious and it's at such a point that his guys just put the hood over his head. That's why, you know, you see the old Western movies and all the way up into modern times, they always put a hood over the head when they hang somebody. They yeah. get that from the Bible. They put a hood over his head, they cover his head, and they take him out and they hang him on the gallows that he had designed for Mordecai. Ain't that a trip? Ain't that wild? The whole story at the end of verse number ten, it ends so beautifully. Excuse me for being so morbid in what I think is beautiful, but I think that's beautiful. Hey, listen to me. There's just a streak in me that has a protective nature that that that, that just feels like it's a wonderful thing when predators die. I'm sorry when wicked people that want to just destroy the lives of those that are trying to do right get cut off I think it's a beautiful ending yeah. and there he was designing those gallows for a good man like Mordecai and he winds up hanging on them himself and there's no way possible somebody in the weak position of Mordecai or the weak position of Esther could have ever put hanging a Haman on those gallows but in the end of the Lord's design Haman's on the gallows And Esther and Mordecai are preserved. You know where your preservation comes from? The king. The end of the Lord. So here's the conclusion to the message. Esther and Mordecai hadn't really done anything. It's not going to be a big dramatic conclusion. They haven't really done anything. There's been nothing special taking place by Esther and Mordecai. All they did is they got on the right road and they stayed on the right road no matter what life threw at them. And the right road always leads out at the right place. But guess what? It takes a while to get there sometimes. So you gotta stay on the right road. And if you'll stay on the right road, you'll see what the end of the Lord is. You can't work out the details of your life. Life will bring you details you never thought it would bring. Life can change in an instant. You can't control any of it. You just keep doing right. And you let the end of the Lord be what it's supposed to be. And in the end, in the end, you're seven times better than you were before. Now, I can't tell you how it works. I can just tell you that it works. So stay on the right road and wait for the end of the Lord. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.